Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's one trailer Bravo, Rakesford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I am fantastic as always. This is, man, summertime in Houston, and it is hot. Uh, I haven't flown in a small airplane in the last few days, but uh, three digits in the temperature at about 90% humidity does not make for an enjoyable cockpit, I'm sure. So thanks to all the flight instructors, and congratulations to all the student pilots that are flying, fighting through it out there. Uh, today is going to be a show, really a potpourri of things. We've had some questions come in from listeners and just a couple of hot topics that Wally's seen on check rides and I've seen around the flight school. So we're going to jump right into it. We're really going to cover four or five things today. Go arounds. Uh, someone asked some questions about sumping fuel. We're going to talk about this hot weather and flying in hot weather. And then we're going to bounce around a little bit with density altitude and pressure altitude to hopefully make everybody a little bit safer and better pilots uh, this summer time of year. So, Wally, let's talk about go-arounds, uh, something that I know we've discussed offline quite a bit, something that I wish I heard more on the radio at uh, our home airport, David Wayne Hooks. Lots of traffic, lots going on, lots of changes in the pattern, lots of probably unstabilized approaches being forced down on the ground. You're you're a pro pilot. What's what's some of your thoughts as a professional pilot in bigger iron as it relates to going around? Well, I know at my airline we have um, three gates, and we call them stabilized approach gates, 1,500 feet, 1,000 feet, and 500 feet. Obviously, obviously that's AGL. And we, we have procedures. If we're not within a, a certain window of parameters with airspeed on center line, configuration of the airplane, landing checklist, complete, that sort of things, um, it is uh, at, at, at certain gates, it's a mandatory go around. Um, well, what we try to teach at, at the airline, and really it, we ought to be doing this in the general aviation, aviation world, is um, every approach, every landing should be the same. Whether it's a short runway, whether it's a long runway, we should be uh, landing the airplane the same because if you know we're used to landing on a, a 10,000 foot runway every day, and then all of a sudden one day we go in and we land on a, a 7,000 foot runway or maybe general aviation, maybe a, a 3,000 foot runway, um, we, ought to, we ought to still be doing things the same way. You know, in, in, in life we probably do things the same way. You know, you, you, you wash your hands the same way regardless of what sink you're washing your hands in. Um, I mean, it's a pretty oversimplification of things, but, uh, you know, let's, let's get to where we fly the airplane the same way. I know if, if I'm landing on a 16,000 foot runway, I've got a huge margin for error. I can land 5,000 feet down the runway and still have 11,000 feet. I can, I can stop the airplane safely within the confines of the concrete. But that's not what we want to do. We want to get in the mindset of, boy, I've missed 
the touchdown zone. I'm going around. I'm going to come back. I'm going to regroup. I'm going to do it again. I remember when I was learning to fly, um, talking to my father, who, who was a retired airline pilot, and he told me, he was telling me about his first, um, and this, this goes way back. This would have been in the 1950s. His first, what he called it, a route check uh, with Eastern Airlines. Um, uh, the, the, the guy giving him the route check, the first thing he asked him about was, what was the missed approach procedure at their destination airport? And uh, you know, you know, my father was kind of perplexed that you know, they haven't even gotten off the ground, and, and the guy's asking him missed approach procedures at their destination airport. And uh, the airport they were going to was in mountainous terrain, so there were, you know, it wasn't your typical fly runway heading, climb and maintain 2,000 feet. Um, there were some, uh, you couldn't do that because of mountains. Um, so I've, that's been with me my entire, entire career is maybe the most important thing about, and of course we're talking about instrument approaches, is the the get out of there procedure? What mm-hmm. is my escape procedure? You know, when you get in a uh, a movie theater, there's exit signs and there's probably a little briefing before the movie in case of an emergency. Here's here's how you get out. You get on a commercial airliner, and that's what they tell you. Here's how you get out. I mean, we haven't even closed the door, or maybe we have closed the door. We haven't even left the gate yet. And they're telling us how to get out. Um, you go on a, a, a Coast Guard vessel. The first thing they're doing is telling you, you know, what the emergency procedures are, the get out procedures. And I think we need to apply that to to general aviation and probably be more more trigger happy, if you will, on going around. Go arounds are not costly. They cost another tenth of an hour on the hops. Yeah, it's not, it's nothing in the grand scheme of things, and the consequences are always going to be so much more expensive. You, you made a comment, and I, I know you didn't necessarily mean it the way I'm going to describe it, but I, I want the listeners to hear this, maybe some of the student pilots out there listening. But you said if you miss the touchdown zone, you should go around. It's not just that. It's all those other stage gates you talked about, and then it's everything else before that as well. You know, the... A, a recent a recent conversation I had with someone was the crosswinds were really bad. And I, I, I said, well, how far were you from the airport when you realized that? And he said, like, five miles. And I'm like, well, why did you why did you try to land? Like, did you have to be there? Was there an emergency? Was, there, was Wally claiming he was having a heart attack in your plane? Like, you don't have to go there. Go, you, maybe that's not considered a go-around, but go by it. Like, don't even try to land there. And if it's, if you're a thousand feet starting to descend and you forgot the flaps and you realize you're going 90 knots in a Cessna 172, you shouldn't try to get the flaps out, reconfigure everything when you're at the 500 foot point at right after you overshoot final. I mean, just go around. There's many, many reasons why you should go around. Not just because you missed your landing target or your spot you were hoping to hit. Um, it's one of those things I just wish I heard more on the radio. You know, tower, we're going around, tower, we're going around. It would not be the worst thing in the world to hear that all day on the radios. 
Yeah, one one thing that that my airline added, um, I don't know, maybe five seven years ago is. We now have a required call out at 500 feet. Uh, depending on the, on the approach, we either get an automatic uh, call out at 500 feet, or the monitoring pilot calls out 500 feet. But the flying pilot, the person who's going to land the airplane, is required to make a stable call at 500 feet. So I hear 500. I am, as the flying pilot, um, supposed to say stable. And it it really makes you think, am I stable? And if you're not, and we have definitions of what a stable approach is, I won't get into all that. But if we're not, it is it's a required go around. Yep. And it you're not going to get in trouble, I assume. No one's oh, going to no. get in trouble in, Absolutely in the GA not. world. Absolutely it's a, not. It's something you actually should practice. Because if the tower asks for it last minute, you better be ready to do it. Um, yeah, yeah, might be things that you're not in your control. So yeah. don't be afraid to go around today. If you are going out to practice or flying with an instructor, it's a good thing to have ready to go in your tools tool toolkit. Sumping fuel. This happens every day, thousands of times a day at Hooks Airport. Um, but I, I do. The questions that were asked are like, what are we really looking for? Um, I thought the the person asking was, was asking some good questions, but it's something that you kind of take for granted. You use a fuel cup, you sum some fuel, and I've, I've got some tips that I was given, and uh, we'll talk through it a little bit. The The one thing that, that I like to do is I like to use a bigger cup. I think the little itty-bitty cups are probably fine, but only if you fill them up, right? So you got to get a good chunk of fuel in there. An eighth of an inch of fuel sump is not probably the right thing. And I, so I like to use the bigger cup and then put the gas back in the aircraft if there is no contaminants or water in it. But you're looking for you're looking for water first, I think, in, in, in our world. This is Houston, Texas. We've had a lot of big storms the last few weeks. And planes that are outside that get, you know, an inch of rain dumped on them in a matter of 30 minutes they either have to have perfect fuel caps or there's going to be a little water in that fuel, right? And um, you really, really should check that fuel, sump that fuel every time someone puts more fuel or what you think is fuel in those tanks or any time that you've been away from that plane that's been out of your control and you're going to go fly that plane, uh, especially if it rained. And a little bit of water is not the end of the world. Uh, That's why we're sumping it. And if you sump it out, a trick would be to kind of wiggle the wings and rotate the plane a little bit back and forth, you know, shaking the plane, trying to get some of that condensation out and sump it at all of its low points, which is where the sumps are. I think I see people missing sumps, um, and I, I go grab them, and maybe they're flying this other N model for the first time, or, or maybe they're going from N and P models to an S model, and there's a whole lot more sumps than there were before. It's important that you get all of those sumps, and uh, we have 20 aircraft. They've, they've, you know, we've had a couple of fuel leaks in our history around sumps. Uh, that's going to leave a, a kind of a pasty blue look on that sump. Um, that's not that's the dye in the the fuel, but that definitely should be looked at by a mechanic and be repaired for sure. Uh, but if you don't see light blue in that cup, there's probably a much bigger problem. 
Um, I've never seen something other than light blue, Wally. Have you ever sumped a, a GA aircraft that used Avgas and had something other than light blue in it? Uh, I haven't. Uh, other than water, I have seen right. water in it. Um, but um, I'll, I'll tell you two quick uh, war stories. Um, I was I was very young, and I was flying with my father. This would have been about 1970, so about 53 years ago. Uh, we were in a twin bonanza, and we were somewhere in upstate New York, and we were getting fuel. And the guy came over, and he fueled us. And and I remember my dad standing outside with the sump. And uh, after he fueled us, my dad started sumping. And and the the lineman, the guy who fueled us, looked at me and he said, "You know why he's doing that?" And you know, I was I was eight years old, seven years old, and you know, I I didn't know what to say. I I said no, and he said. He says it's because he doesn't trust me, and it for a for a brief period of time it was really awkward. I'm thinking, oh, you know, you seem like a nice guy. My my dad shouldn't trust you. Why does he not trust you? And he let me sit there for about 20 seconds. It seemed like about 10 minutes, but it was probably about 20 seconds. And then he said, and he shouldn't trust me. And I, I, I that that stuck with me for well over fifty years, and uh, you know then as we were flying home, my dad was explaining to me about fuel and water, water being heavier. If there's water in the fuel, that it would it would show up, and it was kind of a you know a learning moment for a seven year old or however old I was. But um, I, I think one thing that. CFIs can do to students is you know everybody's walking around with a water bottle with them at some point when they they sump the fuel you know and you got this um, you know two ounce maybe two ounces of, of blue fluid in the in the cup um, take take your water bottle and put a couple ounces put an ounce of water in there and let them see what it actually looks like I, yeah, you it's know, interesting. I, I I remember somebody doing that for me, and it looks a little bit like water and oil. You know, they don't mix for sure. Yes, I do. I do remember working at a flight school where they had a uh, a water bottle, and they had some fuel and water in it in one of the classrooms. And I I just remember uh, they had some uh, youth group there or something uh, promoting aviation, and and uh, one of the one of the young people there actually drank the, the Avgas. So if you do something like that, I would be very uh, tape up that top so it doesn't come off and label it. Mm-hmm. Do not drink because um, it uh, you know, he spit it out real quick. Nasty. Yeah, so just be careful. Check your fluid. I like to hold it up against the Cessna white color of the paint to make sure it's light blue doesn't have contaminants uh and then if there you have any questions at all i obviously ask a flight instructor or the operations or maintenance team at the flight school or the the fbo that you're at so let's talk uh, well let, 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 let's stay on fuel for a second because I'll, I'll i'll just tell another story i was my first aviation job was working as a lineman at an fbo and uh 
you know, I got minimal, minimal training. Uh, this is how you do it. Uh, okay. You're good to go. Well, we, um, the FBO actually opened at 6 a.m., but the, uh, most people didn't get there till 8 in the morning. The, the linemen got there at 6 in the morning and opened up. And for the first two hours, you were usually there solo. And I opened up one day, and I knew that we were expecting a load of jet fuel. And um, so I'm, I'm there in about... Oh, about 7.15 in the morning, uh, this fuel truck shows up, and the, the, the driver, I mean, he pulls onto the ramp over to where the fuel is, and I walk out there, and I just said to the driver, I said, do you have a load of jet fuel for us? And he says, yes, I do. And I go, great, here it is. And I showed him where, where to... Uh, offload his jet fuel to us well about 20 minutes later my my boss shows up and he goes what's he doing I said we got it's jet fuel and he goes that's not our jet fuel company that's our avgas company mm. uh, I mean the, the you know the the trucks don't say jet a 100 low light or anything it's just a a tanker truck so he runs out there, and sure enough, this guy is putting 100 low lead into our jet fuel tank. So, um, uh, you know, they fixed it, um, but all that fuel had to be taken out of there, had to be re-refined and separated and everything, and, the you know, the, the transportation company took care of it. And, and uh, But that was a learning lesson, you know, the... The driver of the truck, jet fuel, avgas, eh, it's all the same to them. Mm -hmm. the, of course, again, this was this was 40 years ago. Hopefully, the education is a little bit better. So, you know, I was a little bit at fault. Um, my 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 boss, maybe for not, I hadn't really been trained very well. Uh, but yeah, that could have been could have been an issue. Well, I, I I've heard this. I've never seen it or been a part of it. But you know, the the that accident in planes occurs sometimes with twin engines where they fill up, you know, turbo prop that, that, that use jet fuel all day. And then they see a big twin that maybe uses avgas and they try to put the jet fuel in it. Um, yeah. that, that's where I think in GA world, we're most susceptible to that happening at the aircraft, but check your fuel, sump your fuel, uh, make sure that you see what you're expecting to see and ask for help when you don't. Yeah, and I, I, I think we do have a, a, a nomenclature issue in general avi aviation airplanes. Turbine, turbo. I mean, we say turboprop. A King, a King Air is a turboprop. Well, my Saratoga is a turbo engine. It's a turbocharged engine, but it's a resip. We burn avgas. A King Air mm -hmm. burns jet fuel. So... Uh, it's, and I hear that with young pilots confusion, turbine, turbo, two different things. Yeah, that's a big difference for sure. Let's talk about hot weather. It's, it's blazing hot. The humidity's bad here in Houston lately. Um, we're going to see record highs, they say in the next few weeks. Um, Cessnas, props, four cylinder engines. They don't produce as much power on these hot days. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the things that, that 
people should be thinking about as it relates to flying in hot days. Um, I, I think that the, the performance charts are where we need to see what we need to see. But um, what do you think about on a hot day in GA? Not forget your big plans for right now. Um, do you make any adjustments to your performance thought process, Wally? What what what, do you, what can a pro like you share with some of the listeners as it's on a hot day? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you know, air, the airplane likes cold weather. Um, everything about to an extent. I mean, we we can get extreme and and that's not good, but um a little bit like your 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 body. I mean, it's 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 hot and it's damp in Houston. We had some significant storms roll through the other night. Uh I was without power for almost 48 hours. So so two nights sleeping um in a really really hot house um mm. and you you just wake up you don't feel rested you know airplanes are a lot like people um we don't we don't like the hot uh humid uh and and we don't perform that well i mean i felt kind of lethargic for a couple of days um i got air conditioning back on so all is good now but uh airplanes are the same way and you know when you Density altitude is, I mean, we, we, we try to preach this, we try to preach this, but, you know, basically here in Houston, we're sort of sea level. Okay. Let's, let's just call it sea level or maybe a hundred to 300 feet, somewhere in that range. But just to make the math nice and easy, let's call it sea level. And we know the, the higher we go, the performance of the airplane degrades you know, so maybe from uh, the ground up to a thousand feet, maybe we're climbing it. Um, uh, call it, you know, seven hundred feet per minute. Uh, from seven thousand to eight thousand feet, we're probably climbing it two hundred feet per minute. And so then, when you you look at the density altitude, that's basically where the airplane thinks it is. Um, so here in Houston, on uh, any idea what 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 is the density altitude today here in Houston, Bobby? Any idea? Two two thousand and ninety seven feet. Okay, twenty one hundred feet. So we're on the ground. The airplane thinks it's at twenty one hundred feet. So something less than six hundred feet per minute, and you know something maybe greater than two hundred feet per minute is going to be our climb performance today. Uh, you know, so if you a hot, humid day. You go load all your friends in the airplane, and now we're heavy, and uh, uh, you know, make could could be a bad situation. Yeah, and, and it's it's it is that thought process about you know when when was the last time I, me I'll use me I'll be the the guinea pig when was the last time I really practiced a shore field takeoff? Um, it, it's probably the week before my commercial check ride. I mean. I probably haven't gone out. I, I I fly at an airport. All my planes are in an airport that has a seven thousand foot runway. The small runway is thirty five hundred feet. I, I'm not really thinking about trying to get off the ground and go. But if if I happen to go somewhere, I, I I would have to really be Johnny on the spot as it related to my performance charts because I I don't know that I spend a lot of time in them on a regular basis trying to understand how many 
how many feet do I need to really get off the ground? But I'm just pulled up a quick performance chart at 2000 feet. The, 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 the ground roll increases by at 2000 feet increases by 40 feet. So that's 10%, right? I've heard that it's just less than 10%, but I've heard that, that term a lot, right? 10% for every thousand feet of density altitude. Um, that's a pretty good, I guess, rule of thumb, but man, we talk, we use the Denver example a lot, I think, cause it's easy. We all know it's the mile high city and we, you probably use something similar on check rides Wally, but you know, Denver's Den- Denver's kind of the extreme, but what if my plane was full of people and it was 5,000 feet density altitude at Houston in Houston, that's, that's Denver as far as the plane's concerned. Right. And I don't think yeah. we would look at those numbers and and recognize that. I did a little work before we got on the the air here, and San Diego's two hundred and thirty five feet. They are at sea level, right? They're it's like they're, they're the airport almost touches the sea, um, right? So still a couple hundred feet off, and then another airport that pl- most of us could maybe relate to is Napa. Napa's density altitude right now is negative one hundred forty five feet cool dry air in napa makes for a place where a plane really wants to go fly and uh those are three pretty big number spreads from a performance chart perspective uh you would need to know what's going on and so what is i i I don't think i understood density altitude and pressure altitude for a long time in my aviation career because i think it's one of those things that you study and you kind of skip over Maybe you don't skip over it, but you maybe you learn an acronym, uh, high to low, look out below, kind of some of that stuff, and you you probably can work your way through a check ride. But it, I think, as I've been around it a lot longer, right? I think more about how well the prop's going to perform, right? How well the engine's going to perform. What's the rule of thumb for uh, leaning the engine? Everyone knows that's at three thousand feet, right? Or the POH probably says at three thousand feet. Well. What if the engine? What if the density altitude is three thousand feet? Yeah, Do, is the engine going to perform as well? Right, there's an air fuel mixture, right? Is the engine even going to fire as well? Is the prop going to have enough air to to pull the plane through the air? And then are the wings going to work as well? All those things are questionable as the the air gets less dense, right? And dense would be thick to me. I think I started making sense when I started thinking that, you know, the, the, the air was more like water, right? Big news story about this submarine and the, the water pressure in the bottom of the ocean, right? That's really the same thing that's happening in the air. The, the closer to sea level, the more weight of the air molecules are creating more pressure more pressure is more air for the wings to create lift and the prop to 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 move air behind it as well right so hot humid day less air molecules more more water in the air uh, creates less mass for the wings and prop to work so i would highly recommend that you challenge yourself on a hot day to pretend that you're going to denver even at your home airport Uh, yeah it's not in denver but yeah, you know, pull out the performance charts. Understand the distances. Um, it could be catastrophic if you if you think that you you only need a thousand feet, but you really need fifteen hundred feet. 
And while that doesn't sound very realistic, that that could be what happens um, here in Houston, Texas, in the blink of an eye, and that could sneak up and bite you pretty quick. Yeah, let's just just you you mentioned uh, the the different types of altitudes, density altitude and pressure altitude. I you know I'm I'm a pretty simple guy and um, high to low, look out below. I'm I, honestly I'm not quite sure what that means okay (laughs) but here's what i do know um pressure altitude pressure altitude and i'm I'm gonna i'm just gonna make this as simple as i know how to make it pressure altitude is what your altimeter reads when you set it to 2992 that is pressure altitude so let's say for instance we're sitting in an airplane and the altimeter is three triple zero three zero zero zero, and it's indicating field elevation. Okay, and let's make the math simple. Let's say we are at an airport that has a field elevate a, a is a hundred feet MSL. So we're sitting in the airplane. We have our altimeter set to three zero zero zero, and it's indicating one hundred feet. Well, to determine what pressure altitude, all we have to do is dial down that altimeter to 2992. And it's going to go down 80 feet. So our pressure altitude is going to be 20 feet, or very, very close to 20 feet. So high altimeter, pressure altitude is going to be lower, which is good. Low altimeter, let's say the altimeter was 2980. Well, now we dial it up to 2992 and it's going to add 120 feet. Okay, and most of your performance charts in your books, uh, in your, your POHs, are based on pressure altitude. So we really should be making that altimeter adjustment. And, uh, you know, we have we have charts where we can make the adjustment, but I think the the simplest way is man, just think about sitting in an airplane. How do we come up with pressure altitude? I ask this on checkride sometime, and my goodness, the 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 formulas I get the square root of the your mother's age divided by your the number of of uh, paws on your dog divided by. The, the street number of your house equals pressure altitude. I mean, I, I've gotten some crazy formulas. Um, it's, it's really pretty simple. Just make that altimeter say 2992, and you're reading pressure altitude. Well, i got to be honest. I'm looking at Google right now, and the, the calculation that they're publishing is a big one. But that's, that's if you don't have an altimeter right in front of you, right? So if you're a pilot and you're at a plane or you're at a flight school and you have the Colesman window there, just tune in, 2992, and you'll know what the current pressure altitude is because that altimeter is reading the pressure in the air right then in real time. And you can use that number for your performance charts. Um, the, the, the other things are going to make the density feel different for sure, right? The the temperature and, and, and other things. But I think the, the big one is just turn that number to 2992 and, and make some performance chart. Look at those with that number and you'll have a really good idea what your ground rule and your uh, clearing of 50-foot obstacles is going to be that day. 
it might surprise you for sure. And it may change your decisions on go around, right? I think uh, if I was on the, if I was at hooks today and the currently the density altitude is 2000 feet, I'm going to add 20% to my numbers just as a rule of thumb. And if I needed a thousand feet to get over a 50 foot obstacle, I'm going to assume I need 1200 feet today. And that means if I'm not, if I'm not really at the like hotel, which is just shy of midpoint there on that runway, I'm not going to go. And that's not that hard to do, right? Float a little bit while you're doing touch and goes that, that you could be there really, really quick. And that would be my determining factor today, uh, for, for coming back up off the ground. Um, ta- a full stop taxi back would not be the end of the world. If you knew those performance numbers, it'd be a lot better than, than clipping those trees at the end of that runway for sure. Absolutely. You know, and, and something else, I'm, I'm right now I'm in the middle of, um, doing something I, I love to do and that's teaching. I'm, I'm, I have two multi-engine students and I'm actually teaching them. Um, won't be doing their check ride, but, um, I'm instructing them. And we haven't flown yet, but we've done a couple of ground sessions on multi-engine performance and everything. And and just a couple of nights ago, we had a ground school session, and we were going through all the performance charts and the, the data and the, the particular airplane we're in. I said, what is our single-engine service ceiling? And they both were able to spit out 4,400 feet um, very quickly quickly and i thought okay all right so here we are in houston texans texas 4400 feet okay that that that's workable and and i looked at him and i said suppose we're taking off from denver and it was kind of an aha moment because they both looked at each other and kind of went whoa that's that's a problem that's you know that's 800 feet underground mm-hmm. so so um, we we need to be very cognizant of these numbers because in a multi-engine airplane we lose an engine. We do have options. Single-engine airplane we lose an engine. We don't we don't really have options. Yeah, we just explained Houston today, and I know there's the twins flying today, and they're they're gonna they're gonna experience if they do the single if they pull if they stop an engine. And they're flying at four thousand feet. They're going to slowly lose altitude until yeah. they get to about two thousand feet today, right? Because the service ceiling being forty four hundred and the density altitude being just over two thousand, right? They're not going to be able to stay at forty four hundred, and right. that brings into that brings in towers, buildings, lots of problems, even in Houston, Texas, right? Uh, on a day like today, so a great example for all those listening out there for sure. Well, it's been kind of a potpourri of stuff. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you learned something. As always, fly safely and stay behind the prop. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe.